0: Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Oh, look, it's Dark Poutine time. Once more. Once more. And again, I am Mike Brown and that's Matthew Stockton. Hello. How are you? 10 out of 10 things. 10 out of 10 well you know i'm about nine and a half out of 10 what would put you over that last half a percentage get rid of this gas oh nice don't be doing it while i'm in the studio <laughs> exactly <please. laughs> exactly oh god this episode's a little different we're tackling something that you're more familiar with so you wrote the episode you did all the research for it yeah. i edited it yeah but, but it's it was really well done i'm you're a good editor well, thank you. I, I, I quite enjoyed what I read. Too. I'm an ideas guy. You edit. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you come up with the idea and I'm, I make
1: it legible. Well, it's you know I work in the cannabis industry. Sure. And um, I, when I got into it, I wanted to learn more about the history of cannabis and prohibition. And sure, eventually started doing some research and was completely oblivious until this point, and completely shocked and appalled with uh, how cannabis prohibition happened and um, what it did to especially racial minorities in Canada and the United States. Yeah. Yeah. The views, information and
0: opinions
1: expressed during the Dark Poutine podcast are solely those of the producer and do not necessarily represent those of CuriousCast, its affiliate Global News, nor its parent company, Chorus Entertainment.
0: Dark Poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. Our content is often intense and some listeners may find it disturbing. We're not experts on the topics we present, nor are we journalists. We are ordinary Canadian schmucks chatting about crime and the dark side of history. Let's get to it. Put on your toque, grab yourself a double-double and an Nanaimo bar. It's time to scarf down some dark poutine. You are responsible
1: for obtaining and maintaining at your own cost all equipment needed to listen to dark poutine. Dark poutine can be addictive. Side effects may include, but not be limited to, you. pausing and questioning the system, elevated heart rate, pondering humanity, odd looks from colleagues as you laugh out loud at work, family members not into true crime worrying about you. Positive side effects may include some perspectives and opinions that you disagree with, as well as some wokeness and empathy. If you don't think dark poutine is for you, consult your doctor immediately.
0: As the week of 420 approaches, cannabis enthusiasts across the globe are gearing up for a celebration like no other. But amidst the excitement, we must not forget the dark history behind cannabis prohibition in Canada and the USA. Contrary to popular belief, the criminalization of cannabis was not a result of scientific consensus about its harmful effects or any widespread health concerns. Instead, It was fueled by moral panic, racism, and xenophobia. The criminalization of cannabis served as a tool to maintain a rigid social hierarchy, with those in power and privilege using it to oppress and marginalize those deemed inferior. As a result, the so-called war on drugs morphed into a war on cannabis, ultimately becoming a war on minorities in Canada and the U.S. This is Dark Poutine episode 262, The History of Canada's Drug Laws, Racism, Moral Panic, and Reefer Madness Cannabis has been used for thousands of years for various purposes including medicinal, religious, and recreational use Its use dates back to 4000 BC in the Panpo village in China, where archaeologists have found evidence of hemp fibers being used to make clothing and textiles. The Scythians, a nomadic people living in Central Asia, also used cannabis for various purposes. From 2000 to 1200 BC, they used cannabis to make hemp fiber and as medicine. They also used it recreationally with evidence suggesting that they would inhale cannabis smoke in small enclosed tents as part of a ritualistic practice. In India, the Atharva Veda, one of the oldest Hindu scriptures, references cannabis use. Written between 200 and 100 BC, the text describes cannabis as a sacred plant with healing properties. It treated ailments including headaches, fever, and dysentery. The Ebers Papyrus, an ancient Egyptian medical text written around 1550 BC, also references cannabis use as a medicine. The text suggests that cannabis was used to treat inflammation and pain, as well as to promote appetite and induce sleep. In ancient Greece and Rome, cannabis was also used for medicinal purposes. For example, the physician Dioscorides, who lived from 420, uh-huh, to 200 BC, wrote about the plant's medicinal properties in his book *De Materia Medica*. He recommended cannabis for earaches, edema, and pain. In 1839, Western medicine was introduced to the therapeutic uses of cannabis by William O'Shaughnessy, who was surprise an Irish doctor. O'Shaughnessy conducted research which showed that cannabis did not have any negative medicinal effects. Leading to a rapid rise in the plant's use in pharmaceutical contexts. I could get this mic. Okay. By 1900
1: here in Canada, yeah, using cannabis was as simple as ordering some from the Sears or Eaton's catalog.
0: Well, there you go. Isn't that incredible? So you could sit in your outhouse and think, hey, look, I can order some weed. Yeah. So, and then wipe your bum with the... Right. Effect.
1: So Sears and, or Eaton. So the US, you, you guys have Sears, you know what it is for our non-Canadian friends. Think of Macy's or David Jones if you're in, in, in Australia or Selfridges in the UK. Like literally, that's where you could
0: get your cannabis from. Crazy. Yep. It should be that way now, really. It would make your job a lot easier. Yeah. Cannabis was relatively easy to obtain in Canada until 1922 when Emily F Murphy came along helping to stoke the fire of moral panic. Some of our listeners who know Canadian history might be thinking, you can't mean Judge Emily Murphy, the feminist hero. Yes, yes we do mean her. Many people don't know the whole story about Emily Murphy because right up to the current day we've only been fed the whitewashed version of her. An article in Vice by Joshua Ostroff, titled The Mother of Canada's Marijuana Laws is a Feminist Hero and a Racist Monster, was written in 2017. And some of you may remember that was history year in Canada, which also coincided with the government legalizing cannabis. From the article, quote, Canada's year-long celebration of its history has been consistently sullied by, well, its history. From people pointing out John A. Macdonald's genocidal tendencies to protests over the statue of Edward Cornwallis, the Halifax founder, who placed bounties on Mi'kmaq scalps, including children, perhaps the feds were hoping to rectify that by having this year's Canadian History Week theme be human rights. This brings us to Canadian historical icon Emily Murphy, leader of the pioneering feminists known as the Famous Five, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau described Murphy and friends just last month as trailblazers for social justice who define the future of our country. Well, this is true, but what JT left out is that Murphy's influence on Canada was as grotesque as it was great. In fact, Trudeau was elected on the premise of undoing the lesser-known part of her legacy that defined the future of our country's racist marijuana laws. End quote. Emily Murphy also known by her pen name, Janie Canuck, was a writer, journalist, magistrate, and influential reformer in both political and legal spheres. Born on the 14th of March, 1868, in Cookstown, Ontario, she became the first female magistrate in the British Empire. She was a member of the Famous Five, a group of women who led the successful campaign to have women recognized as persons under British law, known as the Persons Case. A fierce advocate for women's rights, Murphy was an outspoken feminist and suffragist unafraid to challenge the status quo. She was a self-described rebel dedicated to breaking down barriers and advocating for gender equality. Through her work as a magistrate and writing, she paved the way for future generations of women to pursue positions of power and influence in Canada. And beyond, and and that was the good that she did, and yep. and we can't begrudge her that.
1: But we really do have to get the whole picture of, of who she was, and, and which what
0: most of society was back then as well. Um, what was conveniently left out was that she was a leading figure in the campaign to criminalize cannabis in Canada. In 1922, she published a series of articles in Maclean's magazine that claimed cannabis use led to moral degeneracy and was a serious threat to public health and safety. She also advocated for harsh penalties for those caught using or distributing cannabis, and her writings helped to popularize the idea that cannabis use was associated with violent crime and other social ills. She helped set the fire for a moral panic, and as often happens, connected the moral panic... To racial minorities. Yeah, and you're going to go on and talk about that
1: a a bit, but I just wanted to add a note here because I I actually think this deserves an episode in itself. She also um, pushed for forced sterilization of people with mental health issues in Alberta. She had a hand in a eugenics program up here in Canada. Mm -hmm. So um, I think uh, with your sanction, I think I might uh, attack that as an episode as well.
0: I think that would be a good episode. I worked with a woman who had been uh, sterilized. simply Mm -hmm. Horrible. Murphy's book, The Black Candle, published in 1922, influenced public opinion and government policy on drugs. The book drew on racist stereotypes to argue that drug use was primarily a problem among minority communities, particularly immigrants and people of color, and that drug use was a threat to the moral fabric of Canadian society. Here are just a few of the quotes from the book, and these are really nasty. Yeah. Quote, These peddlers of marijuana are always foreigners, darkies, and Latin Americans. They specialize in selling to school children and their wares are distributed from the schoolyard. Another quote. The international drug traffic is a business run by coolies, Hindus, and the scum of the earth, and it has turned into an international menace. And finally, Aliens of color have formed a drug syndicate called The Ring to bring about the downfall of the white race. So if that isn't racist, I don't know what is. It's awful, awful stuff. But of course, back then, people listened. Of course. Right? I don't even, I mean, some of the terms that she used, I'm not even sure about, but... I had to look up the word Cooley. That's the one that I... I didn't know what it was. I don't even want to know. You can Google it.
1: Yeah. Um, and and to be honest, I actually asked a, a friend who's a black woman, um, because uh, whenever there's racial epithets, is that the word? Sure. A, indirect quotes. I'm like, I, I said to her, like, I don't, she's like, just don't use the N word. But she said, this is truth. Yeah. Right? This is truth. And she, she, she said, from my personal opinion for you, Matthew, this truth has to, like, a, a light should be shone on it. Right? So what else did Emily Murphy do? So... You know, she she leveraged her position in society, her influence as a magistrate, and in her populist following to pressure the government to outlaw cannabis, which they did. And she managed to get cannabis included into the Opium and Narcotics Act. Crazy, yeah. So, so, so which is weird, right? Like throwing cannabis in with opium and the other narcotics. But it it it's interesting. It was a hundred years ago this week, actually.
0: Yeah. Tell us about that. Okay. (laughs) On April 23rd, 1923, 100 years ago, with no debate in Parliament, Canada became one of the first countries in the world to criminalize cannabis, 14 years before it was banned in the USA. After that, it had perhaps the toughest anti-drug stance in the world. The headline in The Globe on the 24th of April, 1923, read, quote, Canada Resolves. Through stiff law to kill drug evil. Government determined to deal ruthlessly as if under martial law. End quote. The crackdown was severe and flew in the face of civil rights. Police were allowed to search anywhere but a domicile without a warrant. There were minimum incarcerations of six months for simple possession with no minimum limit set, with some people getting 15 years and no right to appeal. Many people were being arrested without evidence, beaten, their names splashed all over the press, and then deported. Of course, it wasn't just Emily Murphy. Matthew and I always find it interesting to try to understand the context of time and the socio-political landscape that drives the darker parts of Canadian history. And history isn't always black and white, excuse the pun, Uh, but multi-layered and usually messy, and there often aren't any real heroes. There aren't. No. You know, people we hold up in high regard often are human beings who have really sort of interesting, sometimes terrible ideas. Yeah. So let's move from drug laws being made in Ottawa to the other side of the country here in Vancouver. Home of Dark Poutine Worldwide HQ. In our research, many articles point out that it was primarily anti-Chinese racism that was critical to the passage of these extraordinarily severe drug laws. Before Canada's national drug laws were extended, a broader anti-Chinese sentiment was present in Canadian society, especially here on the West Coast. Several factors, including economic competition, racial stereotypes, and fears about the impact of Chinese immigration on Canadian society, fueled these xenophobic beliefs. For example, in 1907, there were anti-Asian riots here in Vancouver. Chinese immigrants were seen as a threat to the economic interests of white Canadians, particularly in industries like mining, logging, and fishing. They were often paid less than white workers for the same work and were accused of undercutting wages and taking jobs away from Canadian workers. That old chestnut. The media and popular culture often portrayed Chinese immigrants as, quote, unassimilable and uncivilized. On one hand, they were seen as exotic and mysterious, and on the other, dirty, immoral, and diseased. From the Victoria Daily Times, May 2nd, 1922, quote, the Chinese in Canada have never added a single worthwhile thing to this country. They are, like so much dead wood, taking from the resources of the country and returning nothing in exchange. End quote. Holy crap. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, The negative stereotyping was reinforced by government policies such as the Chinese Immigration Act of 1923 which effectively banned all Chinese immigration to Canada until 1947. And and we're planning a
1: whole episode. I've started writing it on the Chinese Immigration Act. Of
0: the yeah, time. and the head tax and yeah. all that kind yeah. of thing. There, That's one that's been on the list. Matthew likes to tackle the more historic things because the, the true crime ones make you depressed. They make me sad and depressed, and it's really hard. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> This broader anti-Chinese sentiment was reflected in the moral panic over opium use here in Vancouver, specifically targeting Chinese immigrants. By portraying opium use as a Chinese problem, politicians and the media could tap into pre-existing fears and prejudices about the Chinese people and use those to justify the extension of drug laws to protect the white race and Canadian society more broadly. Emily Murphy leveraged this Vancouver citywide panic over Chinese immigration and opium use in many articles she wrote for Maclean's magazine, helping to spread the xenophobic moral panic about all drugs across the country. In the article, Deporting of Ah Sin to Save the White Race, Moral Panic, Racialization and Extension of Canadian Drug Laws in the 1920s, author Dan Malik writes, quote, Murphy's first article was entitled The Grave Drug Menace. The first page delineated that this was a Chinese menace. It featured a threatening drawing of a hand with long fingernails holding a Chinese tablet, a picture of a wizened Asian man with smoke coming out of his ears, and a photo of an Asian man smoking a pipe. The text itself focused primarily on white female addicts and warned that quote all folks of gentle and open hearts should know that among us there are girls and glorious lads who without any obliquity without any obliquity in themselves have become victims to the thrall of opiates murphy explained that drug use posed a serious threat to the white race as it accounted for most cases of miscegenation that's interracial relations and possible reproduction the quote continues in subsequent articles, Murphy accused the Chinese of continuing their nefarious activities behind locked doors and hidden passages. Several times she referred to her imaginary Chinese characters as Ah Sin, a quick shorthand for describing the moral failures of the Chinese and had them engage in what was clearly meant to come across as foreign behavior. End quote. Overall, the article The Deporting of Ah Sin to Save the White Race Sheds a light on how many moral panics and racialized fears can drive the expansion of legal regimes and the lasting effects of such policies on marginalized communities. Now, before you get into what you're going to talk about, we're seeing that happen right now in the United States with legislation against drag queens. Yeah. This is ridiculous. <laughs> this, like, moral panic. Moral panic, uh, I don't even know where to go with it. I know. I really don't. It's just
1: insanity. And of course, it's happening in specific states that we're going to mention later on as well. Yeah. You know, speaking of these lasting effects, right? This stuff g- goes on forever once it's in. Once, once governments get some sort of power, they hold on to it, mm-hmm. right? The Opium and Narcotics Act of 1923 it was really significant turning point in Canadian drug policy, and right. it, it criminalized possession, sale, and cultivation of cannabis, making it illegal to use the drug for any purpose whatsoever. And it lasted for decades, right? There were various laws after it, but, you know, cannabis was still illegal all the way up till 2018.
0: Yeah. So almost 100 years later. Yeah. And as a result, there were some ingrained biases and prejudices of Canadian society against people who use cannabis. Yeah. They were looked down upon. And when it when these laws are made by lawmakers, they're
1: spouting off racist remarks, it just sets the stage yeah.
0: for that to continue. The United States had its own moral panic about drugs, its own minority scapegoats, blacks and Mexicans instead of the Chinese, and its own Emily Murphy, a man named Harry Anslinger, who Matthew likes to call Harry Aslicker. Anyway, born on May 20th, 1892, in Altoona, Pennsylvania, Anslinger graduated from Pennsylvania State College, now Pennsylvania State University, with a degree in dentistry. However, he never practiced dentistry, instead choosing to pursue a career in the government. In 1917, he joined the Pennsylvania State Department of Agriculture, where he worked in various roles, including as an assistant to the State Food Administrator during World War I. In 1926, Anslinger was appointed as the assistant commissioner of the Prohibition Bureau, which was responsible for enforcing the nationwide ban on alcohol consumption. It was during this time that Anslinger began to focus on the issue of drug control. His views on drug control eventually led to his appointment as the first Federal Bureau of Narcotics Commissioner in 1930, and this was the precursor to the DEA Drug Enforcement Agency set up years later by Richard Nixon, old tricky dick. Leading up to 1930 were the Roaring Twenties, a period of significant social and cultural change marked by liberation and experimentation. This period saw a rise in urbanization, the growth of mass media, and the emergence of new social and cultural norms such as the flapper lifestyle and the popularity of jazz music. Black Americans started to have an increasing influence on American popular culture, and the black faces of celebrities at the time started showing up in the media. At this time, Cannabis was labeled a black problem, like in Canada, leveraging racist ideas of the other as less than good and a threat. In the 1930s, many Mexican workers came to the USA, as the Chinese did in Canada, due to a labor shortage. The word cannabis was replaced by the word marijuana by detractors and government officials to make it sound more foreign and to help portray Mexicans as drug-fueled thieves, killers, and rapists, which were often the bent of the newspaper articles at the time. Within the social context, Anslinger was figuring out he had a problem. From author Joan Harry's book, Chasing the Scream, The First and Last Days of the War on Drugs, From the moment he took charge of the Bureau, Harry was aware of the weakness of his new position. A war on narcotics alone, cocaine and heroin, outlawed in 1914, wasn't enough. They were used only by a tiny minority and you couldn't keep an entire department alive on such small crumbs. He needed more, end quote. Consequently, he made it his mission to rid the U.S. of cannabis through which he aimed to build his budget and power. His influence helped pass the Marijuana Act of 1937, outlawing the plant. This was part of Anslinger's racist speech to Congress at the time. Quote, There are 100,000 total marijuana smokers in the U.S. Most are Negroes, Hispanics, Filipinos, and entertainers. Their satanic music, jazz, and swing result from marijuana use. This marijuana causes white women to seek sexual relations with Negroes, entertainers, and any others. Reefer makes uh, darkies think they're as good as white men. It's what a, like what a piece of garbage. It's so hard to read that, isn't it? I
1: I don't like saying those words. It's so hard to read that. Um so just let me be clear. He he hated jazz. Let me be clear. This is what he said to Congress in his speech to get them to make cannabis illegal. Yeah. Right? This isn't some hidden thing that he said. This was the speech. Right. And he also hated jazz. He did hate jazz. And I don't trust anyone who doesn't like jazz. Well,
0: (laughs) I like jazz. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Again, we see how the banning of cannabis was deeply rooted in racism. In reality, Anslinger saw cannabis as a drug used primarily by black and brown people. He believed that cannabis made people violent and prone to committing crimes and that it was a tool used by black men to seduce white women. Anslinger's views were not unique and were shared by many people in positions of power at the time. So, in the 1930s to the 1950s, we have blacks and Mexicans targeted by police for drug offenses. Let's now fast forward to 1971. Richard Nixon was president. He also decided to leverage moral panic, stating that drug abuse was public enemy number one, and formed the DEA with the help of his domestic policy chief. John Ehrlichman. But it was never really about cannabis, of course. The social context he was working within was the rising anti-war sentiment driven by the hippies and the black civil rights movement. He used the war on drugs as a facade to stomp down both movements. From a CNN report titled AIDS Says Nixon's War on Drugs Targeted Blacks Hippies on 24 March 2016, quote, One of Richard Nixon's top advisors and a key figure in the Watergate scandal said the war on drugs was created as a political tool to fight blacks and hippies, according to a 22-year-old interview recently published in Harper's Magazine. The Nixon campaign in 1968 and the Nixon White House after that had two enemies, the anti-war left and black people former Nixon domestic policy chief John Ehrlichman told Harper's writer Dan Baum for the April cover story published Tuesday. You understand what I'm saying. We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or blacks, but by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and the blacks with heroin, and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities, Ehrlichman said. We could arrest their leaders and raid their homes break up their meetings and vilify them night after night on the evening news did we know we were lying about the war on drugs of course we did ehrlichman's comment is the first time the war on drugs has been plainly characterized as a political assault designed to help nixon win and keep the white house well that name tricky dick makes a hell of a lot more sense to me now anyway this seems like a great place to take a break And we're back. So let's chat about what we've learned so far, Matthew. Oh my goodness. This this episode actually hurt me to say some of those words. Like, no. it's like, sure, it's historic. But those words are so hurtful to some people. Yeah. It's so divisive, everything that we're seeing. Why do we need enemies? Why do we need a friggin' enemy? Is it to stay in power, to say, like... That's what it's for. Like a certain it? German dictator did? Yeah, yeah. Ugh.
1: I think um, the reason why I thought this would be a good episode is because when I tell people about the racist roots of of cannabis prohibition, they Mm kind of go, oh, yeah, yeah. And then I'm like, no, you don't, you don't, you don't understand. Yeah. Like, it was direct. Yeah. And I've shared this with some of my colleagues. Yeah. Who work in the industry, and they're just shocked. Absolutely shocked. Um, And I think what we're seeing here is, like, step back and look at the themes, the consistent pattern of, you know, somebody in power in a social context and then using, you know, cannabis or drugs as a moral panic to stomp them down as opposed to um, scientific proof of anything, right? Right. And you can see how it's main, used to maintain social hierarchy with those in power and privilege using it to oppress marginalized others, right? Yeah it's just consistent as a pattern and you step back and you can see it time and time
0: and time again. And like I say, now we're seeing drag. Yeah. Being, being the thing. Oh, that's, uh, you know, the gays always get it as well, don't we? Right. The same thing is currently happening in North America as we saw with the drug war not so long ago. Drag as a performative art is not the real enemy, but the attempts to ban it, are surreptitious discrimination against the LGBTQ plus community, specifically against transgender individuals who already face significant discrimination and marginalization. Banning drag shows is just another cowardly way to whip up a moral panic against the true target, which is now the transgender community. But I digress. While America zigged into a harsher stance on cannabis in the 70s, Canada zagged, slightly, with the Ladane Commission. The Ladane Commission was a royal commission assembled during Pierre Trudeau's first term as Prime Minister of Canada. The commission was tasked with studying the non medical use of drugs in Canada and providing recommendations on how the country should deal with drug related issues. The commission was named after its chairman, Gerald Ladane, a respected judge and legal scholar. Four other commissioners with expertise in different fields, including law, medicine, social science, and law enforcement, joined Ledane. According to the Globe and Mail on April 22, 1970, quote, New Drug Commission vows to take fresh look at marijuana use. Justice Gerald Ledane said, quote, We will look at marijuana objectively and scientifically and report to the government what the real problems and issues are. End quote. The commission's work began in 1969 and lasted three years. During this time, the commissioners conducted extensive research, held public hearings, and consulted with experts in Canada and abroad. The commission's final report, Cannabis, a review of its harmful and non-harmful effects, was released in 1972. The report was groundbreaking for its time, as it recommended that the government decriminalize the possession of small amounts of marijuana for personal use. According to the Montreal Gazette on August 14, 1972, titled LaDain Commission recommends decriminalization of marijuana possession. The final report of LaDain Commission said, We recommend the decriminalization of the simple possession of marijuana for personal use because we believe that the present criminal sanctions are more harmful than the use of the drug itself. The report also called for the legalization of cannabis for medical and scientific purposes and recommended that the government adopt harm reduction strategies to address drug-related issues. The Ledain Commission's report was met with mixed reactions. Some praised the commission for its evidence-based approach and progressive recommendations, while others criticized the report for being too radical and out of touch with mainstream Canadian values. Despite the controversy surrounding the report, it significantly impacted drug policy in Canada and helped shift the public discourse on drug-related issues. In an article in the Vancouver Sun on August 15, 1972, titled, "Ladaine Commission Report Sparks Debate on Drug Policy, Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau said, quote, The Ladaine Commission's recommendations represent a major shift in Canadian drug policy and will require careful consideration and debate. End quote. One of the most significant legacies of the Ladaine Commission was its influence on the government's approach to drug policy. In the years following the report's release, the government introduced several measures to reduce the harms associated with drug use. For example, in 1985, the federal government established the Canadian Centre on Substance Abuse to coordinate national efforts to prevent and treat substance abuse. Meanwhile, back in the USA, (laughs) the war on drugs was drastically escalated by Ronnie Reagan in the 1980s, fronted by Nancy Reagan And the Girl Scouts of America with the wholesome, just say no campaign. Girl Scouts? I didn't realize the Girl Scouts. they were
1: involved, right? And a very wholesome front, but it's, you're going to read this in a minute, backed up by a heavily expanded and militarized
0: DEA. Yeah. Do you remember that commercial? The guy with the frying pan and he holds up the egg and said, this is your brain. Yeah. And then he puts the egg in the frying pan and said, this is your brain on drugs. Um, A couple years ago, I
1: did an ad for one of my cannabis brands Yeah, for Anti-Racism Day. Yep. And I did, this is your brain, this is your brain on racism.
0: Oh, yeah, totally. (laughs) During the war on drugs in the 80s and 90s, many drug-related arrests were for low-level cannabis offenses. According to data from the FBI's Uniform Crime Reports, approximately 80% of drug arrests in the United States during the 80s were for simple possession of drugs rather than for drug trafficking or more serious offenses. Cannabis offenses accounted for a significant portion of drug arrests. During this period, the federal government also adopted policies that focused heavily on cannabis enforcement. For example, in 1986, Congress passed the Anti-Drug Abuse Act establishing mandatory minimum sentences for drug offenses and creating a sentencing disparity between crack cocaine and powder cocaine offenses, disproportionately affecting black people. This law also authorized military equipment and personnel for drug enforcement operations. The U.S. also implemented the Three Strikes Law, which you may have heard of. The Three Strikes Law is a sentencing policy requiring judges to impose harsh mandatory minimum sentences including life in prison, on people convicted of certain offenses after having two or more prior felony convictions. The law was first implemented in California in 1994 and quickly spread to other states, becoming a key part of the tough-on-crime movement that dominated criminal justice policy in the United States in the 1990s. The three strikes law aimed to target serious and repeat offenders. However, it resulted in the disproportionate punishment of nonviolent offenders, including those convicted of cannabis offenses. In many cases, those people have been sentenced to life in prison for nonviolent cannabis offenses. Yeah. So like this is the crazy thing. Somebody who is a pedophile Mm. goes to jail for months Mm -hmm. whilst... Somebody who has involvement in cannabis, or worse yet, selling it, goes to jail for life. Yeah. You can hurt a child physically, sexually, and psychologically for the rest of their lives, and you go to jail for a, a matter of months while... You smoke some weed and, 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 and watch
1: reruns of cartoons and you can, you can go to jail for life. Wow. That's why we're doing this episode during the week of 420 because people are celebrating, right? But yeah. um, I'm hoping they take some time to think about those whose lives have been completely destroyed by these laws. And to also remember it's not just from the past. People are still in jail and still being sentenced mm-hmm.
0: now. Ay, ay, ay. Take, for example, the case of Alan Russell. He's a black man from Mississippi who was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole for a nonviolent cannabis offense. In 2017, Russell was convicted of possession with intent to distribute 42 grams of cannabis. That's just a bit over an ounce. Under Mississippi law, possession with intent to distribute more than 30 grams of cannabis is considered a felony offense and carries a maximum sentence of 30 years in prison. However, due to Russell's prior cannabis convictions, he was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole under Mississippi's three-strikes law. Russell's case has garnered national attention and has been cited as an example of the harsh and disproportionate sentences imposed on nonviolent drug offenders in the United States. In an Atlanta Black Star article titled The Travesty of It All, court upholds man's life sentence for 1.5 ounce of marijuana possession and his case is not an anomaly. Mississippi college law professor Matt Steffi is quoted as saying, that's the travesty of it all. This, to me, is a familiar story that's no less shocking and horrible because it's familiar to the point of almost being routine. And routine is too light of a word for it. So Mm
1: -hmm. if you look at the numbers, they've remained relatively stable over the past number of decades. Right. But drug-related arrests and incarcerations have skyrocketed. Yeah. So for example, in 1980, there were approximately 40,000 people in state and federal prisons on drug offenses. This is in the U.S. Yeah. Yeah. But by 2016, the number had risen to more than 450,000.
0: Mike, that's head
1: shaking. Forty thousand people to four hundred and fifty thousand people on drug offenses.
0: That's quite a jump. The war on drugs led to mass incarceration in the United States. A disproportionate number of those were people of color. In Canada, however, there was less incarceration because of the results of the Ladain Commission. However, one trend has been clear over the past few decades in Canada and the USA. Minorities got the brunt of the focus. One of the main criticisms of the Three Strikes Law in the USA is that it undermines the principles of proportionality and fairness in sentencing. The law prevents judges from considering each case's circumstances by mandating harsh and inflexible sentences. The Three Strikes Law has also been criticized for its disproportionate impact on communities of color who are more likely to be subject to harsh sentencing and to have prior criminal records due to systemic racism and over-policing. This has resulted in a situation where people of color are overrepresented in the prison system and are subject to systemic and institutionalized discrimination in the criminal justice system. The ACLU conducted a nationwide study in 2020 that found black people are 3.64 times more likely to be arrested for cannabis offenses than white people, despite similar rates of cannabis use. The racial disparities in cannabis-related arrests are particularly pronounced in some states. In Montana, for example, black people are 9.6 times more likely to be arrested for cannabis offenses than white people, while in Kentucky they are 8.3 times more likely to be arrested. Illinois, Iowa, Minnesota, and Wisconsin are other states with large disparities. In recent years, there has been growing momentum for criminal justice reform, including calls to repeal or amend the three strikes law. Some states have already taken steps to reduce the severity of their sentencing laws, including by adopting safety valve provisions that allow judges to depart from mandatory minimum sentences in certain cases. However, much work must be done to address the systemic injustices in the criminal justice system and promote a more fair and equitable approach to sentencing. In Canada, according to data from Statistics Canada's 2019 Cannabis Survey, there are significant racial disparities in cannabis-related arrests. While cannabis use rates are similar across different racial and ethnic groups, black and indigenous people are more likely to be arrested for cannabis offenses than white people. In 2016, the rate of cannabis possession charges among black Canadians was almost three times higher than among non-black Canadians. Similarly, the rate of cannabis possession charges among indigenous people was almost ten times higher than among non-indigenous people. There is evidence that the racial disparities in cannabis related arrests have persisted even after the legalization of cannabis in Canada. A 2020 Ontario Human Rights Commission report found that black people were overrepresented in cannabis related charges in Ontario and that this overrepresentation had increased since legalization. The report also indicates that Indigenous people were overrepresented in cannabis-related charges, particularly in rural and remote areas. Canada legalized cannabis in 2017, and it came into effect in 2018. And some states in the USA have legalized it as well, like Washington below us and a few others. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And what I find
1: interesting is
0: um, social media... Right, so
1: many activist groups and individuals had worked towards legalization for years, Mm -hmm. but really it was the rise of social media that finally started to, to change the legal landscape and shape public opinion.
0: You're right. Through the likes of Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, individuals and organizations have been able to share information and perspectives about the drug war and its effects on communities, something that didn't happen before. As government officials relied on mainstream media to, quote, vilify drugs and drug users night after night on the evening news, we would never have gotten to where we are today with cannabis legalization without social media. It provided a platform for people directly impacted by drug policies to share their stories and perspectives, including individuals arrested or incarcerated for cannabis offenses and family members, friends, and advocates have witnessed the harm caused by drug policies. Increasing news coverage about potential medicinal properties of cannabis also helped to make the plant seem more benign to people, helping to pave the way for legalization. Some advocates argue that the legalization of all drugs could help to address the root causes of drug addiction and reduce the harms associated with drug use. This approach, known as harm reduction, Emphasizes treating drug addiction as a public health issue rather than a criminal justice issue. Of course, there are also critics of harm reduction who argue that it sends the wrong message and doesn't do enough to address the root causes of drug addiction. Some people believe drug addiction is a moral failing and drug users should be punished rather than helped. However, the evidence suggests that punitive approaches to drug addiction are ineffective. Incarcerating people for drug offenses does not address the root causes of addiction and often worsens the problem. Those incarcerated for drug offenses are more likely to experience trauma, social isolation, and other factors that contribute to addiction. It's great to have the debate. What's important is that we don't fall foul to political rhetoric and point scoring by people in power who we've seen time and time again who leverage racism, xenophobia, and moral panic about drugs and other things to control the population and stamp down dissent or vilify people. Yeah. And it's all in an effort to stay in power. Yeah. Let's scare the shit out of people. Yep. And you and me can have anything we want. K- keep them all fighting. Yeah. Keep them fighting. And then in the background, we'll take all the money for ourselves. Keep, keep, all, keep them all fighting amongst themselves. Yeah. Yeah. And... Yeah, exactly. It's ugh, ugh. oh, oh, yeah. And that gun lobbyist put money in my pocket too. Oh, <laughs> oh, boy! I better not go there. Anyway, but we'll be called woke again. Who cares? Yeah, fuck them. And that's it for Dark Poutine episode two hundred and sixty-three: the history of Canada's drug laws, racism, moral panic, and reefer madness. Have you ever seen Reefer Madness, the movie? I haven't. We should watch Reefer Madness together. That'd I mean, it's it's out of the public domain, so maybe one day we should just do it, do a YouTube video of Reefer Madness <laughs> and us watching it and commenting on it because it would be really like, oh, my God. It's, it is, I have seen it, and it is ridiculous. Yeah. And then, he, and then he went insane on his reefer and killed her with an axe. <laughs> oh, oh, my. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah when I did smoked weed, I just wanted to chill, l- listen to Led Zeppelin and then go to Tim Hortons and eat a dozen donuts. Okay. Like that's pretty much, that was my, my thing like mm. m- music and, uh, and snacks. <laughs> you know, it's funny, Mike, since legalization, um,
1: it's been about five years now. Mm hmm. There's, there's, um, a lot of people thought that, um, there'd be a huge boom in cannabis usage. There's not. It's, it's remained stable at about 25% of the population. There you go. It's been five years. Not everyone didn't jump on the bandwagon. No. No.
0: But uh, yeah, our after show, Matthew is working on something for the after show related to advertising and cannabis, which is interesting. I'm I'm so curious to hear what you come up with. Yeah, it'll be fun. Okay. Become a Patreon
1: and join us. Yeah.
0: That's right. It's time for voicemails. You can leave us a message at one 327 5786 or one eight seven 877 dark We'd love to hear from you. Let's see who called us this week. All righty. We have a one voicemail this week. And it looks like it's from somewhere in the, in the U.S. We've got, had a lot of U.S. interaction recently, which we appreciate a great deal. Here we go.
2: Hi, Mike and Matt. This is uh, Daniel in Vermont. Um, I've been listening to you guys since 2019. Uh, I was referred over by uh, Real Life Real Crime. And I absolutely love your podcast. Um, I just actually had to update my device because I dropped my phone, and yours was one of the first podcasts I reconnected to, to download episodes to try and catch back up. Um, You know, I've been thinking about calling in for a really long time, And uh, the episode that actually first inspired me to think about it was your one on the sleepwalking murder, and it made me think a little bit about my wife, not that she committed murder, because that would be really bad, but um, she was quite the sleepwalker when we first got married. A couple funny stories. Uh, One time she woke me up in the middle of the night, turned the light on, screaming about a bat flying around in the room. There was no bat. Uh, Another time she decided to take the comforter off the bed in the middle of the night because she needed to pack it so that she could replace it with a different comforter. That one was uh, certainly an exciting moment. Um, Or the time she had dreamed, apparently, that she had dropped an earring, and it was behind my shoulder, which she had attempted then to dig through in order to uh, reach it. Um, Anyway, so (laughs) just made me think about that and... Just wanted to say how much I appreciate you guys, um, appreciate your consistency, and uh, look forward every week to hearing another episode. So uh, thank you very much again, and uh, good luck, and I hope that the Dark Routine podcast lasts for another four years. Thanks. Bye.
0: Well, there you go. Well, that was really nice. What a nice voicemail. Thanks, Daniel, from Vermont. Yeah. Um, Vermont is a place where I haven't been. But uh, uh, I've I've always kind of wanted to see more of that is part that up near way. where you grew up. It, it is, yeah, yeah. But I I just have never been. I um, woke up I woke up from sleepwalking in the closet
1: once. Um, it was very confusing. I hadn't been in there since 1986. <laughs> I was
0: going to say, was that? <laughs> oh no, that is exactly where I was going to go with that. Um. I used to, uh, when I was suffering from sleep apnea, I used to scream in my sleep and flail around. Oh, I do that. Which was crazy. And, uh, also, uh, and it's been sort of a pattern throughout my life. Mom and dad told me one time, it was actually the time that we were here in British Columbia. Um, I was sleeping on a cot on the floor in the hotel and... Damn. They were up, still watching TV, you know, my sister and I had fallen asleep. And I sat bolt upright uh, on the cot and said, they're going to get us. And then I went right back to sleep. I was six. Wow. Yeah, so. What TV were they watching? I don't know. Were they but watching a cop and robber show, I. Uh, they never said, but anyway, <laughs> it was, uh, I don't know if they remember that because, you know, they're in their 80s, so they don't remember a lot of things. I don't remember a lot. I'm in my 50s. Me neither. Daniel, I hope you're... Um, Shoulders, okay. Yeah. <laughs> and she got her earring. <laughs> right, exactly. And uh, now he has a new phone because he dropped his other one. But what does Daniel do there in Vermont? Let's talk about that, Matthew. I I, th- I bet she does something. I have this thing. I always think people in Vermont run inns. Okay, like Newhart. Yeah. <laughs> Wasn't that in Vermont? I think it was. I think so. Yeah. So I think he runs an inn. Oh well there you go. Yeah. It it would be nice to run an inn. Yeah. Uh my friend Alan. Either uh, that or it would be a nightmare. Alan R. Warren runs a bed and breakfast up north, okay. uh in uh outside of Kelowna. Okay. In Lake Country, and it's called the Eagle's Nest. He and uh his husband Gary run the place. Oh, that's the name of my place. Yeah, exactly. I nicknamed my place the Eagle's Nest. Yeah. So uh but their place is great. It's right on the lake, and uh, it's pretty fantastic.
1: Oh, you should give me the
0: deets. I will
1: give you the deets. Maybe Justin and I can have a little uh, weekend getaway.
0: Well, he yeah, and Alan is a great cook. By okay. the way, he's a fantastic. He does like an amazing breakfast and stuff. He's mm. a he's really he's a cool guy. I mean, I do. Would so make with me him. look bad to my husband with his <laughs> cooking ability? Would he? No, probably okay, not. Okay. <laughs> Anyway, that's it for voicemails. Thank you. That's it for this week's voicemails. Again, you can leave us one at one 327 5786 or one eight seven 877 dark We'd love to hear from you, even if it is just to say hi and to tell us to go shit in our hats. If you're stumped for what to chat with us about, a quick story is welcome. So patreon this week we have Brad and Jill Weber and they are from somewhere I'm not sure where they're from where are they from Matthew Brad and Jill Weber Muskoka Muskoka yeah where is Muskoka up there in Ontario oh is it yeah okay and uh, what do they do in Muskoka what do people do in Muskoka they're web designers are they web designers they're so we- they they're Webers the <laughs> Oh, no. Wouldn't that be funny? Well, we, no, what we, would, it wouldn't. We, Weber, Weber's web design? Weber's web design. <laughs> or maybe they design webs for spiders. Maybe. Because maybe spiders have gotten lazy and need other people to maybe. design Or
1: Or Brad, Brad is uh, the new Magtag man for the
0: commercials. That was the other thing I was going to go with. The new Maytag man? Remember the Maytag man? Yes, guy? I do. He was never busy. Yeah. Yeah. But I always felt bad for the Maytag Did man. You ever, have you never heard of Muskoka? Uh, I have heard of it. Cottage just, country. Yeah. yeah. Just never been. I haven't been through Ontario. Uh, I've only been through the sort of the drive-through part of Ontario. I've never been. Brad, Brad and
1: Jill. That sounds like a song that um, Springsteen would have sang. Of course.
0: A song of Brad and Jill. Or John Cougar Mellencamp. Yeah. <laughs> a little ditty about Brad and Jill. Yes. Oh, just when did he lose the cougar? I don't know. Because I saw him, tickets available for him. He had a heart attack here in I Vancouver. Like, I was like, when, when did he lose the Cougar? I don't know. Yeah. It's been a while. Next, we have Shay Kumar. And Shay is from Toronto. 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 Toronto, Ontario. And uh, so, Toronto is a big city. Yeah. And there are a lot of people doing a lot of different things in Toronto. I know what Shay does though.
1: But what does Shay do? He invented the tater tot.
0: Are we sure Shay's a he?
1: Sorry. The only Shays I know are he's. (laughs) Um, Shay could be a she. Shay is a
0: she. Okay. Shay is a she. Yep. Okay. Start again. So what does Shay do there in Toronto? Shay
1: invented the tater tot. What? Tater tots. Shay invented tater tot. Well, thank you, Shay. So now Shay just relaxes and
0: pull, pulls in the uh, money from the tater tots. Well, you know what? There's probably a lot of money in tater tots because <laughs> because many people that I know uh, begin eating tater tots when young and continue that when <laughs> older. I think I've had them once. You've had p- Matthew. You're a fancy man, though. I just we've we never had the. I've never just. Tater tots weren't a rich people thing for sure, um, but but we, you're you, I we mean would, we would just
1: boil potatoes, right? Oh, you guys were really poor.
0: Yeah, like you had to have no, an we actual weren't. potato.
1: <laughs> no, we that we weren't really poor. We was, I'm kidding. generally the exception of like canned Campbell soup and stuff like that. We,
0: I grew up sort of most food was made. Sure, my mom did that too. Yeah,
1: yeah, mm.
0: yeah. So Shay
1: invented tater tots.
0: Well, there you go. Keeping things simple for now a long rich time. Rich AF. Yep, exactly. <laughs> well, thank you, Shay, and that's it for uh, Patreons. Thank you, guys. We don't have any donut money donors this week, but uh, we're recording ahead, so I'm sure people are, have probably donated donut money. Well, well by now we'll find we'll, out, and then we'll, we'll get find those out. donuts. We'll get those donuts. Yeah, Matthew and I, you like you've. People have donated so much donut money, Matthew and I can't fit through the door anymore. We, we buy pizzas. Yeah, <laughs> We buy pizzas with the donut money. It's true, <laughs> actually. Thanks to all our patrons and donut money donors, past and present, for your generosity. It helps to keep the show going. You can become a patron of Dark Poutine at patreon.com slash darkpoutine. For a one-time donation, you can send us donut money via PayPal using our email address, Dark poutine Podcast at gmail.com. If you don't already subscribe to the show, it would mean a lot if you did. You can easily find Dark Poutine on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. If you haven't gotten yours yet, my book, Murder Madness, and Mayhem, is available to order via a link on the Dark Poutine website. And speaking of DarkPoutine.com, please check it out for show notes and other cool stuff. We'd appreciate it if you took the time to give Dark Poutine a like or a follow on Facebook and Instagram. Most importantly, thank you for listening, and tell your friends about us. Word of mouth is a powerful thing. So until next week, don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple. Because nobody likes a bad apple. Well, you know, they aren't good. They're bad. Yeah.